of the more that a person has, the more a person wants. Uh, it's that idea of appetite and the satisf- uh, satisfying of the appetite. Um, we would think that the more we got, the more we'd be satiated, the more we'd be filled and full and satisfied, but that's not the truth. In fact, the more we, we, we feed that appetite, the bigger that appetite grows. This is why uh, a, a number one reason why people who have giant income streams, who are, who are really just making a lot of money, uh, they still can get into trouble. They still feel as if they're not rich or they, they act like they're not rich. Um, we also looked at the idea because of discontentment, we have this crazy word in the, in the first world here today called upgrade. If you guys remember that, the idea of the upgrade. Poor people do not understand this. 96% of the world does not know what an upgrade is. But us lucky 4% here in America, we get this. Um, they go into a perfectly good kitchen that works. They rip it out and they put another kitchen in its place. You know what I'm talking about? Um, they trade perfectly working cars for another perfectly working car. They drive in, trade that car for another car. They stand in line at the Apple store and text their friends with the phone, their iPhone, and they're texting them, saying, I'm getting the new iPhone, and then they walk out and they text their friend on the new iPhone. (laughs) Same phone, same thing. Just an upgrade. They stand in front of a full closet, full of clothes, and complain that they don't have anything to wear. When actually they have workout clothes, after-workout clothes, and work in a yard clothes, go to church clothes, go to work clothes, go to, you, you get what I'm saying? We do this, don't we? This is, this is, this is first world problems. And, and, and the side effects of, of being in this culture, of being in this consumerism, and being in this, you know, be, just being blessed, because we are, we're blessed, we have, we have income. But the side effects of that is that discontentment and denial. And we really looked at that. Because the true cost of living, it needs to be understood in the light of Scripture. Amen? We need to look at what God says. The one that's ultimate truth. The one that has set a standard. The one that, has, uh, that never changes. The one that, that we can truly rely on and put our hope in. Lean on and will not topple over. They, he has set a standard for the true cost of living that sometimes we miss. And especially... As we get into this culture that says more, 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 more. So that's what we want to look at today. We have a, a take-home truth here. If you're looking in your bulletins, the take-home truth is simple. It says we need to recognize the true cost of living and not trust in riches, but the one who richly provides. To not trust in riches, but trust the one who richly provides. Now, if we could do, uh, uh, do me a favor, let's stand up for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at the passage, 1 Timothy 6. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that you are an awesome God. Lord, we are blessed as a country. We, we just are. I, I think about this Tuesday, and I, wanna just, I just want to say, Lord, that, that what a blessing we have as Americans where we can go to a little place, a school, a church, wherever it might be, and we can have our opinions heard. We have a say-so in the government that we live in. That's not the case for most people. 
Most people work seven days a week. They just do. Most people cannot take a vacation, have never taken a vacation. Most people have to work every day for what they have to eat for that day. Lord, we are in the minority as a a country. We're in the minority as a people. And Lord, we just want to say thank you first and foremost, but we want to come back to you and we want to say, Lord, what we have is yours. Help us to get that. Help us to know what you have for us. Thank you for the blessing that we have coming up this Tuesday, and thank you for the blessing for, for food in our pantry, for clothes on our back. We thank you for the fact that we can ultimately go to your cross and trust you. Lean not on our own understanding, but lean on you. What a blessing. So we thank you in Jesus' name. May this word hit us where we need to be hit and help us where we need to be helped. Amen. Now as you're continuing to stand, let's let's read this in in, uh, verse 17. Chapter 6, he says this, Command those who are rich in this present world. Command those who are rich in this present world. And as we looked at last week, and as we've been talking about with statistics and everything else, we are rich. Not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. All right, you may be seated. So, Paul here is commanding those. Now, in that day, um, again, Paul is, is, is awaiting a death sentence. He's awaiting a death sentence. Uh, uh, the, the book of Timothy, um, actually, second, even in 2 Timothy, what, what we look at is... He, this is his last book uh, in the book of Timothy. Uh, now, this is 1 Timothy, but we know that 2 Timothy, he's literally writing his last words because he's about to die for the gospel. Um, and so he really wants us to understand, as a culture that is steeped in this, what we need to do to be free and understand the true cost of living. So, verse 17 says, Command those who are rich in this present world. Um, and, then he, and then he goes on to say, Now, this... If I were writing this, I wouldn't have thought to put what he puts. But this is what he puts uh, in a second. But he says, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to, not to be nice. You think he might say that. Or, or play fair. Or uh, not to make bad investments. Or hey, even you know, command those who are rich in this world to be generous. No, he doesn't say any of that. What he says is not to be arrogant. Now, why does Paul go there? I think there's something interesting here. Uh, that, because this truly hits at the foundation, at the bedrock of what it means to be rich or wealthy. This hits at the side effects, square in the face, of what happens when we have more money than, than they. See, the true cost of living, again, if you're taking notes, says this, the true cost of living means we stop feeling entitled and stop acting arrogant. See, money has a way of making us feeling better or more superior to others. Now let me explain. Um, I, I just got our, our van died. I showed you a picture of it last week, and I mean it. I mean, it, Josh, our mechanic, a great mechanic. Um, it, it, I'm sorry, master technician. 
He's not a mechanic. He is a master technician. Um, he's been working on our car ever since we've known him. And he's kept that van just humming, you know, working like a dream. And, 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 and I have to say, I'm not a huge Ford guy, but that engine and that transmission, perfect. Everything else was falling off around it. <laughs> We'd be driving down the road and, oh, there goes something else. It just fell off. Um, I mean, it was literally just falling apart. And he came to us our last time we had a, a thing with it. And he basically said, hey, pronouncement of death. I've given it to your van. You don't have more than six months a year. And he was pretty much right. (laughs) There was a lot of things that were happening on it. And so uh, my wife and I had to make that decision. We're going to go and we're going to get a we're going to get a new van, um, a new used van, and within our price range, as little as we could get, you know. And I mean, I don't think I've ever met anybody that goes out there and says, "I want to pay a ton of money and get ripped off." You know, no, no one really does that. So we, you know, we hunted around and we were trying to find the best, you know, because they always try to get you. How much can you afford a month? Oh no, <laughs> I don't play that game. <laughs> How much can I afford? That's it. Um, and so we just really, we, we, I thought we were as wise as possible. We really got a good deal. But here I am driving home from Escondido in my new van, my new used van, newest van I've ever had, 2010, you know. And it's all clean. It's got, you know, when you go to the used car, they do their best to make that used car feel brand new, you know. And so I'm driving home on the 15 from, from San Diego proper area, you know, just coming home. And I see this other, let's just be honest, it was a nasty looking van driving by me. And I just looked at that van and I thought, oh, how pathetic. You know what I'm saying? Like, poor guy. I'm looking at my van. I'm petting it, you know. Such a great van. Feeling bad for that guy over there. Poor little guy driving his little van. Yeah. Give me a break. It's a minivan. Who cares? You you, you hear where I'm going? But it was so much easier in my nice newer van to look down on the older van over there that I had been driving a week before. I still see my van, and it's hard to get out of that mindset. And I know this. I'll drive around and I see my old E-150, different colors of it, and I just go, oh, poor soul. You know? We we, we just, this is who we are. And I was afraid he was going to roll over close to me because he would cramp my style. Come on. See, the truth is, riches breed this kind of arrogance. And it's not like, I, I again, I, it's a used minivan. But the more we have and the less they've got, the easier it is to, I'm just better. I'm just better than you. I'm entitled. Uh, see, money, I'm going to go through three things really quick here. That this, what I mean by this. First thing is, is money makes people feel smarter than everyone else. Have you ever been with people and, and, and you find out in, in a crowd, maybe you're at a party or something's going on, you find out there's this person that just has a lot of money and everyone's kind of listening a little bit more intently to that person. You get what I'm saying? They, they just, whenever they talk, oh, I should listen. Well, why? Well, he's a millionaire. Well, she's, she's got tons of money. Oh, well, I, I better listen to that person. They, they must be smarter than me. Have you ever done this? I've done it many times. You see someone driving a really nice car, they've got, they've got bankroll, and you're like, man, they're just so much smarter than me. Look what, look what they got. I want to point you to a, a Bible passage. If you ever think that rich people are smarter than you, and, and this goes for all of us, by the way, because we are rich. <laughs> look at 1 Samuel chapter 25. There's a great story there about David who's running, he's on the lamb from Saul, and he's hiding in caves and in the wilderness with his men, and they're basically living day to day, paycheck to paycheck, let's put it that way. They only eat what they can catch, they're, they're, they're outlaws, and they're living the, on the lamb. 
And there's a point where they're in the wilderness, but what they're doing is the shepherds would take their sheep out and their flocks and the goats and everything, and they would feed out in that wilderness. But there was a, there was a chance every, any time as a shepherd where you could get attacked by wild animals or bandits and all those different things. A shepherd was a hardcore job. Nobody wanted it. <laughs> it was tough. You, there was a chance for you to die in the hands of a, a, a bandit or, or the paws of a lion. I mean, you name it, it could come at you. And so David and his men, David being a shepherd, knew this. And so while they were out in the wilderness, they did their darndest to, to get rid of the wild animals, to protect those shepherds. To, they actually engaged bandits and kept all these uh, landowners and, and ranchers, uh, cattle, everything they had, safe. They, they just kept them safe. And, and the interesting thing was, there was a, a time at the, that David learned of, of one of those landowners, a very wealthy landowner, a very rich person, supposedly a smart person, um, was having a party to celebrate all their riches. And so he sent his men down there, and his men came to this person. His name was Nabal. Uh, Nabal, in Hebrew, means fool. Just gives you an idea there where we're going. <laughs> so Nabal um, ends up uh, receiving David's men. David's men come and said, hey, look, you know, we've been protecting your flock. We know you haven't asked for it, but honestly, we're here and it's, we're just being hospitable because in the Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is so important. In fact, if you didn't practice hospitality in the Middle Eastern culture, even to this day, there's a lot of Bedouin places that practice this. If you do not practice hospitality correctly, you're, you can be killed. It's a death sentence. It's just as bad today as, as murder, murder one in our culture. And so these guys come in and they say, look, we're, we're not demanding anything from you. We just, we just have been helping. And, and if you can, share from your abundance to us who are living out in the wilderness, we would appreciate it. And Nabal stands up and says, go pound sand. <laughs> He says, you guys smell, I don't like you, get out, how dare you, it's my stuff, I am greater, you are lesser, get out. And those guys with, you know, hat in hand, they come back to David, and David is just furious when they tell him. He's furious. So he gets his guys together and all his weapons, and he's like, we're going to go kill Nabal the fool. How dare he, how dare he not practice hospitality? Because that, again, that's that culture. Now, as they're going down, and they're, you can, David was a hot-headed man. Okay, <laughs> he was a, he was one of those guys. Like when you, when he was set, he was ready to go, and he was ready to kill Nabal and his everything. And it was his right. It's not, it's not necessarily right, but it was his right in that culture. And he's mad, and so he's running down there, and and he's met by Nabal's wife Abigail, and Na, and Nabal's wife Abigail brings all these gifts, all this food, all this stuff, and says, please, David, I know who you are. We're, my husband is a fool. I apologize <laughs> for his actions. Please take what we have. We want to practice hospitality as the Lord has told us to. You know, and, and, and she, she helps the situation in a big way. Um, the funniest thing, though, Nabal continues to party that night, getting drunk and crazy, and he gets basically wasted. The Bible doesn't hold anything back. He wakes up the next day, probably about two in the afternoon, you know, from his hangover, and his wife comes in and says, By the way, just to give you a heads up, I gave a ton of money and flocks and everything to David. You're welcome. He hears the news. He instantly has a heart attack from the shock, <laughs> and he dies ten days later. It, it, it seems like this random story, but the truth is, what I'm, why I bring this all up is because here we have a man who is so smart, quote-unquote, right? Because he's rich. 
but he's not. He's a fool. And it costs him his life. How many of us, how many of us, we look to the wealthy, we look, we look to our riches and we think it's because we're smarter. And the truth is, a lot of times, we're just looking at another Nabal. And sometimes when we're looking in the mirror, we see Nabal looking right back at us. Just because we're wealthy doesn't mean we're smarter. Secondly, we think our wealth reflects something superior about it, about us. Uh, this is not new, by the way. In the, in the Middle Eastern culture, um, for the longest time, I mean, just the ancient culture, it was all about if you were rich, it's because you were superior. It was because you were smarter. It was because you were favored by the gods or God. The Jews thought the same thing. In fact, if you were wealthy in the Middle Eastern Jewish mindset, it's because you were godly. Godliness and wealth went hand to hand. You were spiritually superior. This is why, by the way, during Jesus' reign, his time of coming through, sorry, he didn't, you know, he's going to come back and reign, that's for sure. But during this time when Jesus was having his, his ministry, we see the, the Sanhedrin, which is run by who? The Sadducees. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But the Sadducees were the ones that had all the money. So they were the ones in power. Why? Because they, they were the most godly. Because they were wealthy. But that's not the case, is it? But we think this way. And see, today, let me just say this, because we can look at them, and we do this all the time. We, I call it chronological snobbery. We look back at the past and we go, oh, a bunch of fools, how could they do that, you know? <laughs> They're so dumb back then, you know? Carrying around their sticks, Neanderthals, right? We, we, we have a tendency to practice chronological snobbery. But the truth is, today, instead of attributing it to the gods or God... We just say, man, that, that, how did that guy get so lucky? How did, how did that guy get so lucky? Man, I don't have that kind of chance. I don't, I don't, have, I don't have that kind of luck. See, we attribute their superiority, their, their wealth, to the God of random chance or destiny. We do this all the time. We compare and we contrast with those of lesser fortunes and fates, so that we might feel better and even superior for at least one more day. Maybe you're like me and you, you look at that person driving the car and you go, at least I'm not that guy. At least I don't have her problems. You see how we, we, we superiorize ourselves. We supersize ourselves. <laughs> That's what it does for us. The highest compliment we can pay a rich person is, oh, they got a ton of money, but man, you wouldn't know it. <laughs> They're so humble. They're so approachable. They're so nice. That's the highest compliment sometimes we can pay. We struggle with this. Why? Well, Paul says this. He says, not to be arrogant, right? Command those who are wealthy. Not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. The interesting thing that Paul does here is the word for hope is, is to lean on, to prop oneself up with security and comfort. When you have a little, you don't, you don't put your hope in what you have. It's easier, to some extent, for people that have less to be more generous, because they don't have much. We're going to be looking at that next week, but Paul doesn't live with the illusion that this future will be secured by what we have today in our hands, our money. One of the richest men in the world, uh, Solomon, in Proverbs 18, says this, and I love this. This is, this is a, a verse to memorize. He says this, The wealth of the rich, in verse 11, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. See, there was nothing better in that culture than to live in a fortified city because you were protected. You, you were just safe. So the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. 
See, what are they doing? They're hoping in what they have to protect them. Solomon knew this. He struggled with this more than anything else. Solomon was one of the wealthiest men to ever live, and yet what did he do? He struggled with wealth. He, he had this appetite that could not, could not be satiated. And he came to the end of his life and he said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. I mean, we're talking about a brother that had, that had 900 wives and 11 or 1,200 concubines. He had women. He had wealth. He had everything that anybody in this world today typically longs for. And yet at the end of the day, what does he say? He says, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's all worthless. It's all a chasing after the wind. Because my appetite just grew and grew and grew. This is why Paul writes in verse 17, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to hope and put their hope in God. See, the side effect here is frightening and what many of us suffer from. Wealth becomes a substitute for God. So if you're taking notes, that's just one of those, one of those side effects. That's the biggest side effect and pain of wealth. See, wealth and, and God will always be in competition for your heart. There is a struggle that Jesus, he, I mean, he addressed it head on. He says, no one can serve two masters in Matthew chapter 6. He says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus talked about money more than he did about heaven and hell. Combined. Jesus talked about money more than anything else except the kingdom of God. Eleven of thirty-nine parables that Jesus spoke of talk about money. One of every seven verses in the Gospel of Luke talks about money. Jesus addressed it. And, and, and this is not, you know, it's very easy to look at this and go, oh man, Jesus was out to raise a bunch of capital. <laughs> That's the easy conclusion. Jesus was about getting a really nice room and building for his people. You know, or, or Jesus really wanted to get a really nice donkey to ride on because he was tired and he deserved it. You know, his feet were... No! He didn't address money so frequently. He didn't address our pocketbook so frequently so as to get more money. He addressed it because our money gets us. Do, do you get that difference? See, he didn't address it so we could get more money. He addresses it because our money gets us. Where your heart is is where your treasure is. Where your treasure is is where your heart is. It's, it's just there. And the more treasure we have, the more our heart is on that. We substitute him for an excellent credit score. We substitute him for a great retirement portfolio. We substitute him for a full pantry. We substitute him for a better car. We substitute him. And then we lean on these things instead of leaning on God. And it's hard because this is a sobering fact for me. I have to look at this every day. Am I trusting in my stuff. This is what it really brings us to. This last kind of fact here is understanding the true cost of living means I don't hope in provisions. I hope in my provider. You get that? I, I don't hope in my provisions. I hope in my provider. See, we affirm as Christians that God is the provider of every good thing. I will not trust riches, but in Him who richly provides. See, we have a tendency to trust ourselves, our own work ethic, our own job, our own retirement plan, our own... We, we, we trust, you know, even in our spouses. We, we trust in so much, we put all of our faith in them, in the provision, what God has provided, which is good. It's good to work hard. It's good to have a wife or a husband that you love and care for. But when you put them on the pedestal that only God was meant to be on, then you are trusting in the provision and not the provider. 
And I do this. And I know I do this because when my car all of a sudden starts acting up, I freak out. When the roof starts leaking, I freak out. When my computer crashes, I have a conniption fit. You you get what I'm saying? This is just what happens. Why? Because I have a tendency to hope in that and not Him. The sad truth is that every provision is in a state of decay and flux. No provision, provision will be exactly the same tomorrow as it is today. That so sought after meal or feast ends up being processed and forgotten. How much money do, do nuptials and, you know, wedding, and the wedding comes, how much money do people spend on that food? And yet I've never talked to a person who's been, a couple that's been 40, 50 years married, and they just, all they can talk about is the food at their wedding. That was the most important thing. Oh, that food. I still can taste it. No. <laughs> that new shiny toy that loses its luster, as does the new car and the new car smell and feel. The relationship changes and unfortunately life is short and we experience loss of loved ones all too frequently. See, every provision, no matter how important at the time, let me, let me get this, please. Every provision, no matter how important at the time, has its time. No matter how important at the time, has its time. We need to remember that. Because it's a provision, not a provider. Three little things I want to point you to. If you're feeling these, these are side effects from trusting the provision and not the provider. First one is worry. If you write that in, worry. It's almost impossible not to worry when our hope is in the provision, in the temporal. This is why Jesus says, you know, the moth, the rust, moths come in and they'll they'll eat the finest clothes. (laughs) Termites, they don't care if your house is really nice. Earthquakes. Oh, I'm sorry. You care about that? I'll move on to the next house. (laughs) No. Fear. That's the next one. The truth is, when you put your hope in the provision, then you are subject to the thieves. You're subject to the things that can come in and take away. And you're always afraid. I mean, here I'm driving my minivan, right? I'm afraid someone's going to hit me. The truth is... It's more likely to get destroyed by my kids, but I'm worried about those guys over there, right? (laughs) You're coming in. And there are dings on our car that I don't even know how they got there. By the way, it's just, it's going to happen. And we can live in fear with the side effect because our hope is in our car, our hope is in our kids, our hope is in our spouse. Will they ever, will this, I, and fear. Or we can hope in the provider. Last thing, hopelessness. It's It's so easy to eventually get to that point where we just feel hopeless. Two things I want to point you to really quick as the, as the worship team comes up is one, you need to refuse to believe the lies that anything else but God will bring you peace. And please, if you don't walk away with anything but this, please do this. Refuse to believe the lies. Refuse to believe those lies that the advertisers, I mean, they are the, they are the smartest people on the planet because they're trying to convince you that you need this. They're trying to convince you that that there is somebody out there that will complete you 100% and you'll never need anything but that person. I love my wife, but if I put that all on her, she would be overwhelmed and she could not do it. Nobody was meant to take the place. No provision, which is in a state of decay, a state of flux, no provision is meant to take the place of the provider. And yet we are convinced every day to believe the lies 
that that provision will bring the peace that I need. That successful company that I'm working on, that amount of money, that car, that person, that thing, that provision will complete me. No. No. It will never bring you the peace you need. Only hope in the provider truly matters. Last, practice humility instead of entitlement. And I know you're probably like me and you're like, I don't act entitled. I just don't do that. I'm not one of those guys or gals that I just can't stand because they're just, it's all about me and give me my stuff and give me my stuff and give me my stuff. No, I don't do that. Or do we? Have you ever stood in the line at the grocery store while the person in front of you has 48 items and you know for a fact because you've counted it three times and they're in the 15 aisle or less? Well, keep playing. I'm on a roll. And instead of doing their thing, all of a sudden they pull out all this other stuff and they're talking to so-and-so who's the checker because they have a good relationship. And about 15 minutes later, you're standing there going, Come on! Get out of here! You turkey! Don't you know the rules? Really, think about it. Don't you know the rules? You're taking my valuable time. Don't they know that my time is precious? Telemarketer, how dare you? Verizon person that I'm trying to call and I can't even reach. It took me an hour to get to them. How dare you take my time? I shouldn't have to wait because I'm entitled. Your work again has passed you by with that raise that you were really working and hoping for. And sure, they give you a little nod, but the truth is, don't they know how hard you work? Don't they realize that how precious you are? Don't they, don't they, don't they? It's about me. I'm entitled. My spouse is not responding the way they need to respond. They're not giving me the attention and the affection they're supposed to. And I'm owed it. I deserve it. Entitled. See, we play this game all the time. We just do. I do. I'm guilty of it all the time. Get out of my way. I'm in a hurry. This is my world. You're just living in it. (laughs) No. Brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you. We need to learn to practice humility and not be arrogant with what we have because we do have God has saved us not for our comfort, not for our security, not for ourselves. He saved us to a plan, to a purpose, to reach out and to live the way we were meant to live. My brother reminded me of this today, Jason, when we were talking and just praying about stuff. He he said there is a, a, a hole inside of us and the only thing that fits that, it's the special shape of God, the provider. Nothing else can fill that. We try all the time. We're like, we're like that dumb toddler that tries to take the circle peg and put it in the square. And every single one of us was there until we got it. And yet we do that today. We're taking everything else and trying to fit it into the hole that only God was meant to fill as our creator, as our provider. So my encouragement to you is you need to recognize in the true cost of living not to trust in riches, but the one who richly provides. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much. We love you and we thank you for everything you've given to us. And the truth is, we're not thankful all the time. If, you're, if anybody out there, which I know they are, they're like me, we're a, little more, we're a little more ungrateful than we are grateful. We complain a little, our fair share. So Lord, I just, 
I just ask right now for, for faith in you and humility for the day. For me, for my brothers, for my sisters, because that's what we need. And our peace would come from trusting and hoping in you, the provider, not the provisions. We thank you. We thank you that we have an opportunity right now in our offering. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we have an opportunity to give. Now, if you're here for the first time, please don't feel obligated to bring an offering today. We've set aside this time as a church family so that we can bring our gifts before Jesus with a thankful and cheerful heart. And again, God doesn't need the money. We need to get rid of what holds on to us. And so if money's got a hold on you, that's just our opportunity. It's ultimately just one more step in following Jesus. And that's, that's all we do as a church family is just follow Jesus closer and closer. And so we just want to encourage you today, as the ushers come on forward, to trust in God and His provision. Lord, we thank You. And we pray right now for this offering that we're about to take. Lord, as a church, we don't want to be hoarders. We want to be helpers. Far be it from us, Lord, to have a big old bank account with a starving, poor world around us. May we take what You give us and may we give it back to You in serving the least, in helping the last, and reaching the lost. Lord, we are on Your mission. And we want to go and make disciples. So may we do that with the funds and the money that You give. We love You and we thank You, Jesus. And it's all for Your sake and Your ministry and Your kingdom. Amen.